Welcome to the Coaching Manual Podcast. I'm Pavel Williams and this week I'm joined by Tom Bates, one of the Premier League's leading sports psychologists. He works with players through the academy and the first team at West Bromwich Albion. In this pod, we discuss motivation, performance, boosting confidence and Tom provides his tips for creating an effective learning environment. But I kicked off the conversation by asking Tom how he got his foot in the door of a top, top club while still a relatively young coach. Okay, well, uh, no pressure. thanks for that, Pav. <laughs> um, and less on the age, by the way. Uh, yes, uh, well, that's, um, it's a good question. It's a good question because from the age of about 10, I've, um, I would probably describe that as my introduction to the game um, in terms of playing organised football uh, as a player. I started off at grassroots level. Um, which in Cambridge, which is where I was born, that's where I'm from, um, and then uh, played uh, grassroots football for a period of two, two three years before eventually being um, picked up by the local professional club Cambridge United for their schoolboy program. Who was your coach at grassroots? Was it a family friend, parent, or did you go in as a, as a complete you know newbie and you didn't know anyone in the setup? Yeah, no, I went in uh, kind of cold, um, just loved playing for the school team, got picked up, the, the PE teacher was the, the guy to take the coaching sessions, um, I think he did it because he loved it, and you know, uh, the PE teacher was the natural selection to be the coach, yeah. if you like, for the, for the school team, and then a friend um, who, who ran a, a local team called Cambridge Musketeers came to a, a school game because I think his nephew was playing and you know he set up a team and, and at that point I don't think any of the, the, the boys that were selected for it um, really knew what was going on either so but we just were involved because we loved it we loved being out on the grass we loved you know we loved playing the game and um, I had tactically technically absolutely no idea uh, about how to, which hasn't changed <laughs> uh, to now but no that was my introduction and um, I remember just falling in love with the game just loving running around and being excited and feeling alive you know feeling creatively alive and happy and healthy and just felt connected with the sport and you know. did you have any ambitions about this is going to be a, a you know a vocation it's going to become a professional career like was that in your head that you were recreating heroes or that it was something you might feasibly do mm. as an adult or, or did that come later on or was it separate altogether my intro- when i when i first got involved at, at school um absolutely no idea about it being a career or vocational you know creating a pathway for myself as a player or as a coach no idea um just felt drawn towards this love this passion this excitement this um pull if you like so um so no at that point no but then two or three years into it obviously you know talking about 11 12 years of age started to become aware that um you know actually i was i was doing okay at this 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 sport um and so I was given the opportunity to train with Cambridge United and, and then from that point I started to really develop a passion for wanting to become a player. Mm-hmm. Um, trained in a professional environment, their centre of excellence at the time, under a guy called Mike Cook who was a, a great coach um, and still is, he's still involved coaching and I bumped into him from time to time. Ricky Martin was also my, my one of my coaches who, um, who picked me out in a trial, who's at Cambridge uh, United and then moved on to Norwich, which is where he is now as a, an academy manager. Um, so then I guess you could say the transition from grassroots to uh, uh, that aspirational side of wanting to become a player and, um, and have a career in the game started to, to formulate. Um, 
But then very quickly I was released from that program um, because uh, I wasn't good enough. Um, so my world ended. It's like. good that you can be brutally honest about it though at this point. Cause I still have friends who, who never even really reached centre of excellence. They maybe played semi-professionally or, or yeah. whatever it was that happened to them. But even then they still cling on to this idea that I would have made it but and they kind of have this, this excuse in their head. And so it's refreshing when you meet people often who've been actually higher up in the game who say... Yeah, we was never going to make it. I, I can look back now and be honest about it. Well, I'm still bitter. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I studied psychology, to fix myself. Um, no, yes, I wasn't good enough. I, I wasn't good enough. Um, technically, I wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, physically, I was okay. Could run and, around, but didn't, um, didn't develop the techniques early enough, uh, I think, to be good enough to make it as a pro. So... Then I studied in Cambridge, went on to study uh, psychology. Um, again, I was intrigued by it. It was um, fascinating to me that the you know, areas of the, uh, the mental and emotional um, aspects of performance, um, the more I uh, researched it, the more I came to realise that these were as important, if not more important in the end, um, at the elite level. And probably um, I'd always been, I'd always had this intuitive instinctive sort of um, inquisitiveness, this curiosity for the side of psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point in time when I was a player, there wasn't really much around in this country sure. about it. No one really understood much of it, in sport, in, in sporting terms anyway. And so I started to just, you know, follow that um, intuition, follow that inquisitiveness, and it led me down the, the road of um, combining PE and psychology at A-level in Cambridge. Um, and then moved south to, to Bournemouth University to study sports psychology and coaching sciences. That was a four-year undergraduate degree with a, a placement um, year, like a sandwich course, um, in which I, I got involved and started doing my badges at that point as well. Because, um, you know, I, I always felt that the, the, the coaching side was as important as the psychology side and the combination of and how, how, how um, the best coaches that I had ever worked with seemed to not just have a, an understanding of it, you know, in terms of a technical, tactical understanding of the game, mm-hmm. but they had an outstanding ability to make people, players, staff uh, within the team feel valued. I'm sure someone will come back to you a little bit later on, but all of the exceptional coaches I've seen, maybe without the credentials, are sports psychologists. They just intuitively or mm. by educating themselves, they understand mm. not only why people learn and look from a developmental standpoint, but just how to get on with people, how to communicate in a way that, that people respond to, uh, how to exude authority. All of these aspects are psychological aspects, mm. but they, until at least very recently, were never part of a coaching course. It seemed to be something that was innate in, mm. in really exceptional coaches. So mm-hmm. I'd certainly agree wholeheartedly with that aspect of it. Did that help you get back into the game because you had that balance of technical, tactical and psychological? Did that help you get back into the game without having been an ex-professional, without having um, you know, made a, a plethora of contacts within the sport? You were still able to work your way back into the professional game. Do you think, what is it that helped you, amongst all the other people who'd love to do that, get back into the game? That's a great question. Um, I think uh, number one is um, I didn't have any contacts at AFC Bournemouth at the time. 
uh, which ended up being my placement year, full-time, applying sports psychology with the under-18s at that time, and a guy called um, Joe Roach, who was the head of youth and reserve team manager um, at uh, AFC Bournemouth. Um, and Kevin Bond at that time was the manager. Um, so, so I didn't have any contacts, if you like, into AFC Bournemouth. Um, so it's a good question because I think if I look at it and reflect honestly, I think that the thing that helped me back into the game was, again, this ability to follow this inquisitiveness, this, this, this passion, the thing that I believed was most important to me, the thing that I could envisage doing a career in and thing that uh, meant something, had a significance, had a value, it made sense to me, it, was, um, it, it gave me a purpose and I felt drawn towards it. So I, I, I refused to give up on that, uh, to follow that. And of course, you know, clubs at the time were receiving um, a multitude of requests from universities and you know students up and down the country and this is something yeah. that graduates often come to me and say you know how did you do it and well, how did you get back in and who did you go to and what what special techniques did you use in terms of you know what letters did you write and I mean I remember writing about 350 letters to football clubs um, at the start of my degree um, and I always remember receiving one from from Chelsea um, and Jose Mourinho uh, had signed it himself which was, he probably didn't even read it, but he signed it. And that was so, that meant so much to me because that, that signified a hope, you know, a light to, to not give up on following what I believed was the most important thing for me, which was, which is the application of, of psychology um, in coaching, in professional football, because of the difference that it makes. Um, so how did I get back in? I, I followed that, that purpose. I followed that, that calling, if you want to call it that, um, that passion, that desire. Uh, and then I just refused to quit. I mean, you know, I remember sending two or three letters out, phone calls. And, and in fact, I went down to the stadium at AFC Bournemouth in the end, having not heard anything back, right. <laughs> um, dressed up in a, you know, a suit and a tie that I borrowed from a friend. I mean, it literally was like this um, without an appointment. And mm -hmm. I just, you know, turned up and I borrowed a briefcase to make myself look professional and... Um, I'm not paying a very good picture of myself here, am I? So I turned up. <laughs> the first time I ever got in a press box was by wearing my dad's smart coat. And just saying, I'm not the best. Like, yeah. But at a certain point, you've had not even failures, you've heard nothing. That's the thing, it's that I don't know if they've read the letter even. Or I don't know if the email's just in amongst 800 other unread emails. So like, be honest with me, just go out and do something different, like make yourself stand out from everyone else who's just writing letters, like, just yeah. sending emails. Even nowadays, just, you know, mentioning 800 people in a row on Twitter, so your Twitter stream is only mentions to other people asking for something. So, well, I don't know what value you're adding there, but come and meet me face to face. I get on with loads of people because they're there. People are generally great to get on with. I think the fact that you spent 350 letters mm. Stand you out from somebody who sends ten or twelve or, or you know twenty letters, surely. So mm -hmm. there was something where that was that a conscious choice that I'm going to keep going, or did you not even have to think about it? It was never a question of stopping, or was it a conscious effort to keep trying? Yeah, I think I think it was both conscious effort to keep trying, a refusal to quit. And again, I'll say that you know a lot of my um, friends at the time were sending letters out. They were having interviews, but not at places that they really felt most passionate about. You know, so for example, there'd be people studying sports psychology and coaching, but they were going for interviews at a leisure centre to be a full time lifeguard for a year because that was the only full time placement they could get. And I mean, I guess it really comes down to a question of how how far are you willing to go. Um, to follow what you believe to be most important and to to suffer the slings and arrows of, of the rejection of letters coming back and sometimes letters not even coming back, you know, not hearing at all. Mm -hmm. 
So probably, what, why did I go to the, the stadium that day um, unannounced or without an appointment? Because I just, I'm a big believer in that when you follow what you believe to be most important, that when you follow that, when you pay attention to that instinctive intuition that, 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 that calls you, that I think is in every one of mm -hmm. us, that we know who we are and what we're doing and what we're designed for, and you follow that with all of your, with all of your will, um, with all of your spirit, eventually uh, you find a way. And uh, what happened was Joe came down the stairs um, at the stadium at Dean Court. I remember it like yesterday. I can still see the picture of the receptionist. She, she asked me to take a seat and five minutes into it, Joe comes walking down the stairs and he says, Tom, Tom, I've got five minutes. Sorry I didn't get a chance to email you back. I've seen your letters. So obviously his position was such that um, it was inundated with other paperwork. Mm -hmm. He was running the, the youth department, which was a, a, a colossal task as it is today. And, and um, so he had already seen it, but I would never have known that unless I got down to the stadium. And he invited me up for five minutes, five minutes turned into an hour and a half, walked out with a placement. Um, it was unpaid, so I had to find a way to, to finance it, but that didn't matter to me. You see, that, that, that just paled into insignificance because I knew that what I would be doing for that year um, was in line with what I wanted in the future. And, and that's how it happened. In that first placement year, how much of the textbook approach that you learned at university was genuinely applicable off the bat? Uh, or how much did you have to make up on the spot? How much did you have to uh, evolve gradually until you found your own style? Um, is sports psychology something that you can you know, read the FA guide, then go apply and it's just going to work off the bat, or is there a little bit more nuance to it? That's a great question. I remember um, thinking to myself that, um, am I really ready for this position to, to apply what I think that I know, mm -hmm. and not what I know that I know, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I also remember one of the reasons why I was coaching at the same time as applying psychology, so I was coaching in the Centre of Excellence, is because, um, you know, that was a conscious choice. I mean, friends of mine uh, studied in the library and chose to use that time to get a first and, and get the academic qualification, which I fully respect. Um, and I didn't choose to spend my time that way. I spent my time out on the pitches, if you like, immersed on the, on the what I like to call it, the front line, you know, learning um, in the environment, in that cultural um, environment, learning the, the nuances, learning from the coaches, learning the dynamics of the environment, learning the demands for the players and the teams and the coaches. Um, and so, so I spent much of my time uh, within that culture. Um, why did I do that? Because I, again, and this is just my belief, that um, there's a big gap between what is being academically researched and what is being practically applied. Um, and I would say that my, my education uh, at university the first couple of years gave me a good grounding um, for the, some of the theoretical um, points, but the experiential stuff gave me the opportunity to practically apply. And so um, when uh, you know, many of my friends left university with firsts, and I didn't get a first, I got a 2-1, um, and the employers said, well, you know, that's great, you've got a first, what else have you done? Because you know, thousands of other students have also got firsts in very similar fields. I always felt that you know, that practical experience would be, is more valuable um, uh, than purely only the academic uh, side of things. But then maybe that's because I'm not as intelligent as my, my friends who spent that time <laughs> studying in the library. And there's a common factor when you talk about interviews, in um, not just in football even, but across the board, when it's so competitive as it currently is. And such a huge proportion of applicants have got very good degrees, 
Yeah. It's almost a cliche to talk about the extracurricular things you do, but you know, I, I started an alternative student newspaper um, or the sports section at least helped in a brand new venture. Um, I didn't spend any of my time studying either. I did my personal training award. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all those extra things actually is where it's a very odd career that I've kind of forged for myself currently. Didn't come from any of the academic work at all. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it wasn't a job that's ever been put in a newspaper in a way. It's just opportunities fell from going out and meeting more people mm-hmm. and from um, doing all this extra stuff. And, and in fact, that's probably the advice I give most often to people who ask about game in um, obviously, we have a strong relationship with Southampton, so that's the one that they bring up most often. Is how do we get into Southampton Academy, or I want a career in football more generally. Mm. And it's very rarely to the advice is purely go and get your A license or go and get mm. um, a degree in, in coaching because everyone's already got that. Mm-hmm. So what else can you bring to the mm-hmm. table? What else can you mm-hmm. can you do? And then you need to be able to apply it, and you need to actually be good at it. You can't just talk about it forever. You can't just mm. practice forever. You have to actually go and apply it, and it has to work. I'm just wondering. When you started at Bournemouth, sports psychology as a field within football certainly mm. was untried, untested. Um, how did you prove that you were adding value to the squad uh, in order to kind of keep your, your position there really? What, mm. what were some of the, the wins that you got out of it mm. that you could then demonstrate to the coaches, to the players, look this thing, this psychology aspect is key and it is valuable and here's why it's valuable. Mm. I think um, from the start it's, it's a great question from the start I think I, I always had the um, interest of the head coach so Joe was a man that always had I keep mentioning this instinctive intuitive um, curiosity uh, into sports psychology into psychology he came out of the, the forces um, the army um, where of course there's a, a big overlap of the demands of having to come together to achieve a desired collective goal and getting the best from one another and I think that always was something that he related to, uh, wanted to know more about, wanted to understand more um, and looked to me to be able to provide that help, that assistance. Mm-hmm. So right from the start there was a buy-in but that wasn't, that, that, there wasn't a buy-in from everybody so there, weren't, there wasn't a buy-in from all of the other coaches. In mm-hmm. fact, I, I remember my first day at Birmingham City um, walking across, it was a club photograph day, one of the senior, you know, the first team players are in, the academy are in, it's the it's the first real chance to meet everybody together and um, one of the senior members of staff, uh, let's call him John Smith, because that was his name, <laughs> um, he came across and said, you know, you're the new, uh, you're all about psychology, aren't you? And I said, yeah, nice to meet you. And I extended my hand, a big, bright smile, young, enthusiastic, and yeah, all of that. And, and uh, he didn't shake my hand and he said, um, well, I can't repeat what he said, but along the lines of, you know, what a load of rubbish that all is and um, I quickly figured out that, that even though some of the, the key decision makers of an organisation um, buy into it, that doesn't mean that the rest of the organisation does, be that coaches, be that um, managers, sports scientists, uh, physiotherapists, all of these, all of the, the you know members of staff that make up a team. So I had to very quickly find a way of presenting how much of a value uh, it can have. Um, and to do that, I, I, you know, I used a lot of different ways. I mean, I remember working to go back to, to Bournemouth, my first ever experience, a time when I was, um, you know, kind of really new to sports psychology, if you like. Um, sitting down, speaking with the players and the coaches and just establishing and clarifying, first of all, what it is, in inverted commas, you know. And I always, and I always like to define that. Um, 
in, in, in a very simple way, which is uh, how does the way that we think um, affect the way that we feel? And how does that emotional state uh, that we create for ourselves mm -hmm. through the way that we think affect how we behave? And ultimately in this environment, how does that uh, uh, define our performances on the pitch? So the bottom line is, can we think more effectively? Can we improve uh, the way that we feel to improve performance? Mm -hmm. And that's the bottom line. So that's my simple definition. The bottom line is, will it help me improve my performance? Absolutely. So once you define it in simple terms like that and, and leave the, the terminology, the jargon, if you like, sure. the regurgitated academia, mm -hmm. and I mean that with no disrespect to um, the theoretical underpinnings of much of the work that, mm -hmm. that is done in sports psychology, um, you, you have a buy-in from the, from the players mm -hmm. and, the, and the coaches and, and you're able to speak the language um, within the culture. And so I could do that because I'd spent the last four years working within football, mm -hmm. professional football clubs, studying coaches, working with... I've also been extremely privileged to have worked um, with some fantastic mentors and some, some coaches who have worked at the, you know, the highest level of the game internationally, uh, on the world scene and uh, world competition in different sports. Um, and so that's, that's given me an insight into what works, what doesn't work. And I've always had thinking partners um, at that level, mm -hmm. which has been a tremendous help to me. I mean, I definitely, I would not be here unless I had that opportunity to, to work with mentors, to guide me, to, to mould me, to shape me, to learn from their experiences. And that has, you know, when, when students come to see me and they come to the training ground and they send me emails and letters, mm -hmm. and, you know, they, they always say, is it possible to have five minutes? And... I think I, because I've been privileged to have had mentors, I always, um, as much as I can, mm -hmm. uh, respond to that and open up to that and encourage others to find, to find mentors in their, in their chosen field. Because it's so important. That was um, Dick Bates' advice last week for any aspiring coach really? or, or any coach wanting to go to the next level from where they're currently at. A man of all that experience, any single piece of advice really was, find a mentor who mm. can tease you along and bring you up to their level, then you might, you know, hopefully they'll move up at the same time or you'll find a new mentor. But that was his one piece of advice. And mm. from somebody who's worked for five decades at the heart of English football, yeah. it's quite a strong, you know, it's such yeah. a strong piece of advice you can't really turn down. Yeah. Um, you talked about gaining, if you like, the respect of the group early on. Mm. And even, even today, but certainly back then, you'd have been younger than a lot of the players you were working at and one of the things that I see a lot with young coaches whether it's at grassroots or in um, something like street games where they work with kids from, from you know fairly rough parts of city centres or even at academy level where you've got very talented players uh, and not necessarily particularly talented coaches coaches who can demonstrate but who aren't going to set the world alight if they join in the game at the end yeah. um, all of those present challenges for just winning the respect of your group and Personally, I believe to coach effectively, you have to have the respect of the group. So what were some of the ways you, you approached that within the sessions? So first impressions are first impressions. You, you can try your best, but then you had an opportunity to work with the group regularly. Mm -hmm. What are some of the ways that you um, demonstrated your authority and in a way won, won the respect of the group you're working with? Uh, I think probably from the very first meeting, I made it very clear that it wasn't about me, actually. 
I, I, it's, these sessions, these ideas, these concepts are not about me. Um, the intention, and intention is always a great thing to start with, is to help you to improve your performance. Um, I'm not standing before you all. So if it's a squad session, I wouldn't start the session and say, these are the things that I know uh, that will help you. And because I know it and I've tried it and I come from here and it's all about me, I would um, very quickly uh, suggest that to the group, um, especially the senior ones, um, I would ask, always ask them to reflect and share their experiences and how they see the, the situations that they are going through right now and how they see the challenges. So I would always um, have this ability to, to get in tune with their, their world map, if you like, mm -hmm. the way that they perceive themselves and the, the performances, but also their, their entire environment. So if I, if I went the reverse, then I would give them a technique or an intervention that, would, that might not be suitable because I hadn't spent the time understanding how they see and feel and think about where they are, um, which is often very, very different from where the coaches and where the staff think yeah. that they're coming from. So in fact, some hostility can come from that it's almost a threat to that whatever worldview or perception yeah. or yeah. even, I guess, authority within the group is that if you're trying to step on toes, you can actually create barriers in that way. Is that, is that fair to say? Definitely. And, and one of the things that I always ask and still ask in the sessions that I run with uh, staff with players is that I'm not asking you to accept at face value what I say to be true mm -hmm. or equally reject it and dismiss it at first glance but the ability to practice this skill of being open-minded enough to consider the possibility of um, the truth in some of these things that we're discussing is the first step and that creates an open-mindedness and objectiveness it takes down defensive barriers mm -hmm. and um, of course within the room especially at senior level there is a, a depth of experience that that um, far outweighs my level of experience as a young practitioner mm -hmm. and so uh, my um, standpoint is that if it can help one percent two percent if we spend 15 minutes together and after that 15 minutes you just go away with one thing then it's been a success, you know. This concept of 1%, 2% improvement is 100% value. Mm -hmm. So that's the approach that I go with. And, um, you know, at best I'm a thinking partner to, to help players and teams and coaches think through, process some of the stuff that goes on, that flies around at that uh, elite level. Did you ever have to work on your own confidence? Um, you've been delivering for a long time, so you didn't come in as a sports psychologist with no coaching background, mm. but... Was it something you, you had to consciously work on to improve your delivery to a group? or um, Just in my mind, that's something I struggled with as a young coach and I know for a fact a lot of the coaches that I mentor, whilst they'll be great in a football environment off the peers, um, you know, they'll have a joke, they will have a thick skin. When it comes to actually presenting to even young kids, they actually lack confidence, they're actually quite nervous about their own performance. Was that something you experienced? Or even if not, what's the advice you give to people who do experience that? Confidence is an interesting one because sometimes when I speak with people, they say to me, and sometimes when I speak, work with players in particular, they say to me, you know, this, these sessions are all about how you give me confidence, right? And I said, well, you know, confidence isn't this idea of walking into a, a, a psychological supermarket and going, oh, 50% on confidence and, you know, two for one on motivation and look at that, half price on desire, I'll take some of that. It's, um, 
the first one is um, the first concept about confidence is confidence I believe is a choice we can be confident through the way that we choose to be in control of the way that we think um, uh, our physiology our language that we use uh, the beliefs that we hold about ourselves those are choices um, so how did I get to be confident delivering was I confident then as I am now absolutely not um, and I think that comes from experience I think that comes from consistently putting yourself outside of your comfort zone mm -hmm. so if there was a session to be with a senior group of players uh, and I asked myself and I had that feeling of I don't know whether I can do this you know do I have enough experience yet or I would always put myself into that uncomfortable situation and still do you know there are times when I'm speaking with senior staff who have different views and different beliefs and sometimes my um, my my perception is different and I know that it could have value although it's different so the question is am I do I back myself to share those ideas even though I know that I may be shot down for lack of a better expression mm -hmm. okay and the idea may be rejected completely um, but I think it's um, it comes down to what what do we ask the players to do we, we, we consistently ask the players to step out there and, and be confident and put themselves into difficult situations and trust themselves and believe in themselves and um, and that's what we have to do as staff um, to know how much it takes for the players we have to do that ourselves to be able to give that away so confidence came from consistently putting myself in uncomfortable situations mm -hmm. even if probably and especially when I lacked confidence mm -hmm. and then being open enough to receive the feedback um, and not to, to fight uh, criticism to um, have the ability to consider it again to be open-minded enough to reflect mm -hmm. um, and think back on and take those points on board mm -hmm. uh, and not be scared to go again and make those same mistakes again because eventually eventually um, I'll find that, that right balance and I welcome the idea that players will disagree with me um, I, in fact I think it's healthy I think it's healthy that staff members share their beliefs and sometimes those are conflicting and different and, and, and I think on the other side of that lies growth um, but that's about communication that's about having a, a collective understanding of the reason why people are sharing different beliefs and, and views and perspectives and I think ultimately if you have that then in, in the, the, the outcome of that is always growth we always grow I think more so than probably the vast majority of professions, you, you really have to walk the walk, don't you? You have to be um, not only self-aware, but you have to be constantly aware of your own thoughts and actioning yeah. ways to improve that, more so than probably almost not only other members of staff, but I think generally coaching, that is true. But so many people in other walks of life, you have to really be the role model for this way of thinking, I suppose. Yeah. So one of the things I would say about coaching, especially is that there's a lack of male role models for a lot of people that we interact with. Um, so particularly if you work in the grassroots game, you are dealing with a lot of um, a lot of players who don't have regular contact with parents, who don't have regular contact with male school children. Primary school teaching especially is a, a, a female-dominated industry. Mm -hmm. So I've always looked at upon myself as having to be a male role model and having to really kind of say walk the walk myself um, and I talked about just before we started recording my, my under 15s called me up when I came back from America somewhat heavier <laughs> I, I'd always talk, talk to them about fitness about uh, nutrition and I came back nearly a stone heavier yeah. and they called me up on it and, and I, was, I was glad of that in a way because yeah. it showed that they were looking to me to set an example in, in a mm -hmm. way 
uh, and also was great motivation for, uh, for losing <laughs> it again, in a way. But, um, you know, it must help you in so many other areas of your life beyond football. It's not just a skill set that applies to performance in sport, but in a much more general sense as well. I think, is that fair to say? Yeah, it is. I think it's important, first of all, to take the first point that you bring up about um, role models. So important because, you know, that time, there was some research done recently, which is, um, and they they did a survey in schools to boys and girls um, about the most significant uh, person in their lives. Um, was it the teacher? Was it the mum? Was it the dad? Was it the coach? Was it you know the grandparents? Was it different different people? And the coach um, came out as number one um, across the country. Which, when you look at it, you think, well, you know, that's that's an incredible position of, of power. Mm-hmm. Beyond um, when we look, start to look at the underpinning reasons of why they're number one, it's not just because they are, are within their sport, but it's because they are uh, they have such an important um, ability to create or destroy um, the level of um, esteem, the level of self-worth, the level of self-confidence, the level of togetherness. They literally have the ability to, to build the platform to create or destroy. And you know that one session, that one hour that, um, that you, you know, put on on a, on a flooded Friday night or you know, Saturday afternoon at the park becomes it becomes the, the focal point, the, the one part of their week that they look forward to. And often terms, you know, at times we, we look at those people, that we, the young ones that we discussed. That's an outlet, that's their release, that's their escape from some of the challenges and tribulations that they face in their own lives. And we should always remember that because um, that's an incredible you know, position of power. So that role model um, point that you made is, is so important. Um, and the second part about the principles that, that I'm helping um, players and teams and coaches with in, in performance, do they relate to outside of performance? Absolutely. Anyone who's a parent, anyone who's a teacher, anyone who's a coach, anyone who has interaction with loved ones, with, you know, with children, which is all of us, right, can, um, can really um, always improve the way that we do that and the amount of um, love and care and uh, the values and the principles that we live by, we have to live them ourselves before we can. It's impossible to give something away that you don't have yourself. You can never help someone to be confident unless you are confident, unless you, you know, face up to the own challenges that, that, that we have. So it's important, and that's, um, I have a phrase which is, um, again, one of, one of my mentors, Keith, he says, come back to self. Um, and come back to self literally means, you know, look in the mirror and mm-hmm. ask yourself the question, are you applying the things in your own life that you are trying to help others with? And if you're not, then come back here first. Instead of going out there, come back here first and ask yourself the question. My, um, my own mantra, which is somewhat big to a university, but it's, um, it's about Aristotle or from the Oracle at Delphi, don't know, know thyself. Mm. Simple that if you're upset about something... First and foremost, what's going on with, with myself, what's going on with you, which might be filtering it, might be affecting it. You talk about the rose-tinted glasses that people have, but I know a lot of people walk around with kind of, what you'd say, grey-tinted glasses, not just because we live in Manchester, but <laughs> they have a quite a negative outlook on things oftentimes. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's really common, I think, in, um, in coaches that you talk to, 
might have a really hard, because they work at grassroots, they might have a really hard work day until half past five in the evening. And they've got to suddenly be up, they've got to suddenly be um, you know, confident, they've got to be bright, they've got to be energetic and enthusiastic, ready for a six o'clock session. Mm. And that can be quite a turnaround, especially if you've got a traffic jam or something mm. like that and you're rushing through. So mm. is there any tips you can give to coaches who go through that on a weekly basis? They have, it might be the focus of their week is the coaching session as well. It might be that's the bright light at the end of the tunnel for, for them as well. But how do you get into that mindset quickly if you need to, that, okay, I'm about to deliver a session, I don't want to be with you know, shoulders down and, and you know monotone voice. I want to be up. What can I do to get myself into that right frame of mind, ready to deliver a yeah. hopefully great training session? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, three quick tips then. Just changing state before the session. Um, never, never, uh, you know, turn up. And if you can get changed at work, you know, if you're talking about a day job, yeah, um, get changed before you even get to the training ground. Don't get to the training ground in your clothes that you've been at work in all day. Because, um, you know, you pick up on the, the baggage, if you like. Let's call it baggage throughout the day that you pick up. The stresses, the pressures, the, the you know, the paperwork that comes your way. Whatever your job is in the daytime. Um, you can change state really quickly. Um, and, and changing state, when I say change state, I mean um, uh, changing your physiology is one quick way. Okay, so before you, you go out, have a little jog yourself. Uh, have a little, you know, breathe in. If it's raining, get out there. You know, have a little jog around and stretch off and, and do that and get your heart rate up and just break off and release the shackles of the day. Um, and um, second one, I talk about with players this difference between the, the real self and the performance self. So if you've been at work all day and you've you've slipped into the the real self and the and the and the like I said the pressures and the challenges that you've faced in the day whatever those may be for your job for your for your real self when you step across the white line you you transform into the performer self and it's just like being an actor on stage so what do you want what what does that ideal positive role model actually look like how how are you going to affect those kids for the best for them who are you there for well you're there for the children okay so what do you want as the outcome for them for those kids so real self performer self when you step across the line what are the traits of the performer self that you want well it's always energetic it's always enthusiastic um, has time for question and answer uh, asks the players questions um, generally has a smile on their face certainly do no harm that's you know so that when you start to think about what it is that you want out of your performer self, you um, by default, what will happen is you'll start to uh, see those pictures in your mind, right? So if I ask a coach to think about a session and, and, and get the best, what does their ideal performer self look like as a coach? Um, they'll start to see pictures in their mind. They'll start to see interactions. So it becomes a visual uh, cue, if you like. Um, and the third one is, um, uh, let's just go back to the purpose the reason why. Ask yourself the question, what is the purpose of you being there? Why are you there? What is your reason why? I'm less interested in what you do, I'm interested, more interested in why you do what you do. And if you ask yourself the question as a coach, whether you get there with five minutes to spare or one minute to spare, that always helps to refocus the objective for you. Why am I there? I'm there to inspire, to teach, to give, and whatever else the things that you believe you're there for, that helps to focus your mind. And immediately, your conscious mind, through focusing on those objectives, your, um, your, your, your mind, your body, will adopt that which you, you search for in yourself. And that becomes your focus. 
I think that focus and, and, and having the right intent from the start, you talked about everything else flows from the intent. Yeah. Um, I think that's why it's so key for a coach to write down what their philosophy is because there's so much information about what makes a great training session. Mm. It's, it's overwhelming, it's too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so the advice I've given recently to people about, um, I'm about to go deliver a, you know, a lot of coaches started the season and they've never coached before. So six, eight weeks ago, they'd never you know, picked up a bag of footballs in their life. And suddenly there's 15, 16, um, you know, seven or eight year olds in front of them. Mm. It's like, just simplify it. Don't, don't panic too much about the, the, you know, I wrote an article about the balls, bibs and cones, but it's like, that's almost like the least of your worries. It's like, yeah. the kids will be fine without those. Yeah. So go in and, and for me, it's, and the youth awards have been fantastic at spreading this idea. And mm. um, certainly amongst the grassroots coaches around the country, but the starting point is communication, your personality, and your philosophy. Mm. Um, and I think at an academy, the philosophy is set. It's kind of, I think, my experience with Southampton at least is there's definitely, let's get around the table and discuss this and, come, and reach, to some, reach some consensus. A grassroots coach doesn't always have that um, higher level of, whether it's control, higher level of communication. So they have to develop it on their own. Um, you know, is there is there a simple piece of advice that you said this is how you determine what you want when you've got so much different bits of information? Mm. Is there a way that you would teach players or coaches just to filter out the extra and really find that one little piece of information that's that's key for them that resonates with their own personality yeah. or with their own belief system? Definitely, the, the very simple, most important advice that I could give is. Um, what are the needs of the players? To start there. That's that's the starting point. Mm-hmm. Forget the how much knowledge that we think we have mm-hmm. in terms of sessions. Um, the the second piece of advice that I would say is um, it's not about so much how much we know, um, but it's how we make them feel. Um, you know, I don't care how much knowledge I have if I cannot inspire my players to learn from me. Um, that knowledge becomes worthless. So what are the needs of the players, mm-hmm. first of all? Um, and who am I there for? Well, I'm not there for me. I'm there for them. Let's let's get the perspective on this, especially, you know, even the, the youth one, the, the grassroots that we're talking about here. Well, I remember a conversation that we had previously about why are the players there at that level? They're there to, to learn, to have fun, to mm-hmm. to run around with their friends, to, to have a, a great experience. And it's certainly not about results and it's certainly not about them being able to rotate as a number 10 and a 4-3-3 or sure. overlap as a fullback, you know, and um, it's there to, to have fun. You talked earlier about throwing out the, the jargon without meaning to disrespect the academic yeah. um, aspect of, of psychology, but... I think that applies for so much more of coaching as well as the technological, uh, the technical, the tactical, mm. um, all those aspects. It comes down to communication. And forgive me if I go pop psychology here and correct me, but one of the things you talk about a lot is framing, framing mm. um, an idea, a concept, and then you'll get the players to buy in. So I think that's an important point because you might really want to teach players about rotation, but I think if you don't frame it in a way that players see the benefits, players understand the value of it, they're simply not going to want, want to yeah. do it. They're just yeah, going to want to do something more simple. So how do you ensure that the way you communicate a point 
fits with the worldview of the players that you're working with? Mm. Well, first of all, you have to understand um, what their thinking is. So, do they think, or do they, and how much do they really know uh, about? If we're going to use the overlap as an example, how much do the players know about the topic? Do they think it's important? How have they conceptualized that idea in their in their minds? And so it becomes this. Um, I work off of a concept that it takes as much skill to ask the right type of questions. Uh, you know, at the right time, in the right way, for the right reason, as it does to know all the answers. Um, and asking more questions, sometimes the answer is to ask more questions. Mm -hmm. It simply is to, if you think you've got clarity about the way that players think and see the world, and always get more, get more clarity, always ask more questions. So that's the, that's the, that's the, the, the foundation, that's the start point. Um, because clearly you might have two or three players in the group that know exactly how an overlap is done, when and where it needs to take place, and the others are like, well, I'm not too sure, and then you've got some that have got absolutely no idea whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But what a great resource those players are within the group, the four or five, that understand the concept. And can we get to a stage where the players self-regulate amongst themselves so that the four and five that do understand can demonstrate, can speak about, can show, whether that be on the tactics board, whether that be out in the session, whether that be just speaking about it in a debrief, mm-hmm. um, whether that be asking more questions of the group to a position where the coach is not the only thinker. And that's the key point. That's probably one of the key points here is that this, if you like, the golden zone for me is self-regulation within a group. Can the players independently, objectively, think through, process, and overcome the challenges away from the coach's input. Uh, input. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, remember, I remember going over to Barcelona uh, and watching the, the under-18s play by Leverkusen on the Saturday, um, just before the first team played in the, in the game where Messi scored five in Champions League. And... Um, I remember watching the game and the Bayer Leverkusen coach was literally up and down the touchline with a clipboard. I mean, I think he even had a whistle on his neck. I mean, it was a game, right? And barking <laughs> orders from the sideline. And the, just the, the players were trying to, you know, they were they're just looking over to the coach and then they were looking at the game and then it's just this horrible mess of... The game is stressful enough, uh, you know, in itself without that constant input from the coach stopping it every two minutes. Shout. I can't concentrate if I'm a player on the coach giving me all that jargon from the sidelines and the demands about where my man is, where the ball is, where my position is, which direction we're heading in. You know, it's the game is too fast I, I, at any level to be able to do both of those Absolutely. things all the time. Absolutely. And I looked across at the, the Barcelona coaches and I, you know, I noticed just how calm. And it was an even game, by the way. Mm-hmm. It was an even match. And uh, the Barcelona coaches were there in the, in the shade of the dugout, you know, 35 degrees or whatever it was and if something good happened or a player did well and be hey clap of the hands and you know if they needed something to be improved it would be hey just quit uh, yep and, and let them get on with it and afterwards I spoke with the coaches and I said you know why did you allow them um, to, to have that amount of time to, to why did you not give them more technical information in the game because you could have impacted them and he kind of looked at me in a, a crazy way and said well you know, match day is their day. Match day is the, if you like, it's their opportunity to show us how much they've learned mm-hmm. throughout the week. You know, match day is their their time. Our teaching time is in the in the week. And what a beautiful concept that is to give the players the freedom to express the level of knowledge. You know, and a friend of mine said, "Well, doesn't that mean they'll make more mistakes in the game?" And the coach said, "Yeah, brilliant, because that's what we want." Mm-hmm. 
we want them to make as many mistakes as they can to learn. That's that's got to be our, our our philosophy, our foundation. So I think with that with that time, with that freedom to make mistakes, you know, to think through, to process, to find the solutions independently from the coach, is um, is the only way that we're going to get to this stage where the players can uh, self-regulate to take care of themselves, take care of each other, and move forward. And so that shift in terms of thinking is is prominent right now um, in the youth modules and like I said that is relevant to um, not just in academies that's not just you know um, the elite level grassroots as well mm -hmm. right the way on through down into schools into teaching into PE lessons it's a bigger it's a whole different view world view of the way that we've come to understand teaching and learning mm -hmm. I think one of the frustrations um, the grassroots coaches reach uh, and it comes back to a point you made earlier about deciding what the players know already and using that as a resource within your coaching sessions. Is there a frustration with, um, some coaches will purely say the game's the teacher and they'll do no coaching at all, but even coaches who will use some Q&A and some guided discovery, is that there's a limit on where players of a certain ability can get on their own. Or they might be getting lots of practice, but they're not necessarily practicing the most effective yeah. technique or skill or decision, whatever it is. Yeah. So I think that's a really important point that you can hit a wall with guided discovery if there's no coaching intervention, if there's no addition of knowledge coming from the sidelines. Yeah. So how much of that goes into the preparation, the planning of a coaching session is, is knowing, okay, if we hit a wall here, this is how we move it on. Because we have session plans that have, you know, those those primary colour boxes, and we'll go right technical, great. I'll fill that technical one in. Um, physical, I can think about the physical. What movements do we need to make? But um, in America, they combine psychosocial yeah. um, and have a completely separate section for tactical. Here we have tact um, tactical kind of straddles the boxes, but a lot of coaches just use the psycholo psychology section. Right, that's decisions, that's tactics. There isn't a lot of thinking about what's my questions going to be at this point, or what can the challenge be for the players who are you know really pushing on and doing well. Yeah. Or what are the challenges that are really going to help the players who are falling a little bit behind the group and coming on? Yeah. So when you're working with the coaches in the academy, who because of the E P, they have to have exceptional session plans. It has to be so yeah. detailed. How much thought can that can go into that psychology section? What sort of things? should a grassroots coach be writing in that box in a way? Yeah. Um, this is where I think the, the point should be made about that, um, the purpose of the intervention. We're speaking about purposeful practice, and if a player does uh, is practicing well, but they're practicing the wrong things, then they'll be skilled in being incompetent. You know, a skilled incompetence, if you like. Um, mm -hmm. Which is something that um, happens, that goes on. And the skill of the coach is to A, recognise that and come in with an intervention that's purposeful to allow purposeful practice, but also that's individual to that player. So I know from working with my players that there'll be individual needs, that players will learn differently, so different learning styles, etc., etc. I have to know that as a coach. I have to be able to understand how each player will take on the information and how each player best absorbs that information and how each player best learns and applies that intervention. So so if I use Q&A with a player who I need to show, then because he's a visual learner, for example, then what, why, am I asking, why am I using Q&A for? Mm -hmm. So um, there is definitely, in a session plans, there's a need to understand the psychological, the personal, the social, the mental, the emotional. 
Um, and I think that probably uh, uh, underpins all of it. I'm, I'm biased, of course I am. But it goes back to the sense that if I, if I, if I don't have the ability to communicate in an effective way, mm -hmm. to address the individual needs in an individual way, then any of the information that I present to the players will fall flat, flat on his face because I haven't established that ability to communicate in a way that, you know, if it's, the, it's the concept of if I, if I tell a player a thousand times how to do something and they get it on the thousandth time, then who's the idiot? Me. I am. Because I haven't figured out how to connect with this player, how he learns best, how he understands it. And um, I have to say that the, 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 the most empowering, uh, lasting way to, to coach someone is to release that, um, that inner ability to solve problems as they occur mm. and rely less on external guidance. Because I think, I think players, given enough, given enough time and given the right learning resources, uh, are a lot cleverer than we've come to believe. Mm. And I think it's a lot more about them than it is about us. And when we shift our perspective and philosophy and start with the individual needs of the players, the individual differences of the players, mm. and so therefore what are the individual interventions that are needed to respond to those needs, that's the master coach for me. How to get the best from everybody, how to get the best individually from the players, to come together as a whole. It's fascinating when you're out in America, it's such a coach-centric society. I think that the highest paid state official in almost every state is a high school or college yeah. uh, basketball or football coach. Right. Um, there's an enormous pride within a town of being the, you know, the school, high school coach, win whatever sport it is. So, to educate coaches in that culture about the importance of toning down your influence and increasing the player influence, this is in a country where professional athletes come off the field every 35 seconds and be told by the coach exactly what they're going to do for the next 30 seconds and go back on again. Translating that to, to soccer, it's really difficult to spread this idea about just giving the players time. And I think it's a society that favours athletes who can just take on advice, right, go do it, perform. It doesn't necessarily favour individuals who, given a thousand attempts, would eventually get there on their own. But what they come up with would be completely different. It would be so creative that nobody, no coach on the side would have told them to do it. Um, is there validity in saying that there are definitely different learning styles for different players? Because it's a theory that I've seen questioned a little bit recently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, or is it not as simple as that? Is it not as simple as this player's in box one, this player's in box two? Mm. Uh, somebody who still has to read the literature but also is there on the field day to day to day. Mm. What's, your, what's your view on learning styles? Is it something where we've got a system that sets up certain people mm. to succeed currently and ignores others? Or is it something where the coach just has to intuitively you know, decide what's best at an individual moment in time, even within the same player? Yes, both. You're right. There's a debate about whether there are learning styles or not, whether there is validity in, in that. Um, I think uh, having observed, having experienced, having watched the coaches, the best coaches, the very best coaches work, um, and I said it earlier, they have an ability to connect and get the best from. So there is an also, there's a research element to it, but there's also an instinctive, intuitive ability that you have... Um, to create and communicate effectively. Um, because, you know, by definition, uh, if the coach has the ability to be able to present information which is absorbed in different ways uh, for different players, 
then that's the that's utopia you know that's that's the end that's where we want to get to are there different learning styles i think there are i think certain players have uh, different ways that they prefer to have uh, information presented to them there's no doubt about that when i look across the squads that we all work with there are certain players that have to see it on a dvd to understand what you know what you're talking about some players although they're visual learners that they can't quite get it on a tactics board they prefer to have it done you know standing up and moving around kinesthetically presented um, and I think that um, probably the actual answer is who knows how, how much a person is kinesthetic and visual and auditory and so what we have to do is try and test different ways and if I if I'm using a visual demonstration for example and the players don't get it, and I talk to them about it, and they still don't get it, then I've got to be creative about the way that I can explore other areas. Um, and so once you explore enough in different areas, and and I think it's it's really just having this ability to be flexible, to observe whether there is or is not. I think we can also be too quick to go in coaching right that is the tried and tested method that will always work it works for every player it will work for every player that i ever work with in the future it's worked with every you know that is um there's a great danger in that because we're constantly evolving you know as a as a as a group of players but also as a human race no we're updating and mm -hmm. expanding our knowledge of how we think and feel and understand ourselves and all of that um so the coach who has the ability to understand the evolution of learning and is also flexible enough to try different approaches and the last part of that is to recognize the difference that it makes in other words the success that it attains by being a certain way that's the answer so is there a certain method of test that you can well yeah there are psychometrics that you can probably administer and it'll come up with a piece of paper in terms of you have this type of learner that can be valid but then it depends on which piece of paper you read because there is you know there's enough research out there to argue either way so I think what it comes down to is you have to be able to understand your players you have to understand the needs and communicate I think that's interesting I've come across um, obviously we both use Twitter to communicate with people but also to you know to, to ask questions and we we learn an awful lot more from reading tweets than we do from sharing resources from sharing information um, but from all different angles, all different parts of the coaching world, and these people who hold views really vehemently that are the complete opposite of somebody else who holds another view, you know, equally as vehemently, and they're both very good coaches. So there's an awful lot of that um, kind of ping pong over the table or back and forth, like, oh, this is the way to coach, this is the way to coach, this is the way to coach, and I, I guess where I'm starting to reach, and, and it sounds almost like what you're talking about there is. Actually, what I need to do is not see exactly how a coach delivers. It's to come up with my own methodology for testing whether that style yeah. works and, yeah. and to what degree it works. So is that something that you picked up academically or through practical testing? But do you have a framework where you say, is this working or isn't it working? Like how, how do you test your own success within a session, within a group? Test the success of, of the objectives within a session within a group by the response of the group members. Um, have, they, uh, have they demonstrated an understanding? And how have they demonstrated that understanding? Mm -hmm. Have they moved in the right areas? Have they uh, shown an understanding of a correct technique or, or gone through that biomechanical you know, phase of producing the movement that's required? Have they 
actively questioned one another? Have they thought about and uh, seen, observed, if the game, if they're not on top of the game, how are the other team on top of us? What are they doing differently, tactically? What's the shape? What? And so, so for me, to answer the question is, um, the success of the intervention is measured by the response of the group members, of mm -hmm. the players themselves. And to, to see that, to measure that. And if one intervention doesn't work, then I can be, for example, in the academy we have um, a whole list of, you know, we've been working on consciously producing and labelling intervention methods, types of intervenings, um, particularly, you know, in the, in the psychological corner. Mm -hmm. um, so when, once you have that framework and, and you have the individual differences and you know the differences in the team, then you're armed. So it comes back to having that really clear picture in your own head though of what success, what excellence looks like beforehand because you need something to compare to. Yeah, definitely. And if you ask a great manager, I'm sure, if he's at first team level, who for whatever reason doesn't have the, uh, the money from the chairman to go out and buy different players and improve the squad that way, he will, he will, he will frame his team to the strengths of the players rather than asking them to play in a certain way that they haven't developed the ability to yet. So they might do that over time. They might have to do that over time. Um, but initially, to, to, to go in and to get the best from the players, he works the strengths of the players um, and moves forward from there. Now, how does that relate to interventions? Well, if you, if you have a, an understanding of a way that a player learns, then you come down to that level. You communicate in that way and then move forward. Um, and it really is all about understanding the individual differences. Just to finish off, I'm going to touch on the professional game a little bit. Obviously, so much discussion um, in the coaching sphere is around how we compare to other countries. And, and you talked about um, study visits over to Barcelona and seeing what happens over there. But England have just qualified for the World Cup. Already, stories come out that the difference is going to be will they deal with pressure? Will the environment be correct? Will the, will the environment allow them to, to maximise the potential? Is psychology powerful enough that you can overcome technical difference, you can overcome tactical inaccuracies with the correct mindset, with the correct preparation? Well, we talk about players that have A, attitude, and B, C, talent and ability. Um, and then we flip that around and say A, B, C, uh, sorry, B, C, uh, attitude, A, A ability. Um, and then we go B, C, attitude, um, A, talent. Uh, and we always say amongst the coaching staff that if you have a player with an A attitude and then B or C ability, that's the player that um, will eventually uh, maximise the strengths of himself, contain the weaknesses, maximise the strengths. Because talent, talent will get you to the front door, if you like, but it's character and attitude that, that keeps you there. Um, and that togetherness within a squad, that, that mental toughness, that belief, that, that confidence, is, um, is undoubtedly, there is no doubt, when, when, you, when the team get to the World Cup, that, that the level of belief that they have in themselves and each other will far outweigh the, the technical uh, incompetencies that's based on the assumption, of course, 
that there are technical incompetencies because I hear a lot of talk about the England team not being technically good enough as other international teams, you know, Spain, uh, Brazil, Germany perhaps. But I think that the truth is, is that we are technically uh, good enough, we are tactically good enough, we are physically good enough, and we are psychologically good enough. I think there's a little bit of a myth that surrounds that, the, the England team um, and the national setup. For whatever reason, the press like to continue to feed that out there. That there's this, you know, there's always this big problem mentally with the England team, and they suffer under pressure. I sure. think a lot of people are going to be surprised about about England in the World Cup. Um, and let's remember that in the last game that they played, specifically uh, Montenegro, there was a, a moment when um, at one nil, you can sit back and you can try and play safe and avoid losing, as opposed to trying to win, and that. That, motive, that orientation of motivation was not... They didn't sit back. They didn't just try and contain the game. They were brave enough. They, they dared to lose, to win. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is a massive psychological skill. That's a tremendous amount of belief in, them, in, in each other. And so there, there are some great signs. And, you know, we're all, um, I'm certainly excited about the World Cup, but I don't think there'll be a psychological problem. And I also think that people will be surprised about how much that can have an impact, that level of belief. Do you feel, Andy, frustrated by a substantial simplification when you listen to commentary on not just England games, Champions League games, Premier League games? Um, obviously, working within the professional game, set up the level of conversation, the level of awareness and understanding of the really fine details is so high and the standard conversation that, that I've been fortunate to be privy to more recently mm. has completely opened my eyes to the, the level of detail involved in the game and yet the analysis, the commentary is so superficial I think it doesn't really do us any favours in terms of understanding or in terms of shaping public perception of how good the England team really are or how good a player like Wade Rooney really is mm-hmm. is it a source of frustration for you or do you just accept it and, and smile and move on and, and don't let it panic. You know, don't let it worry too much. Yeah, I think I think um, from the players' perspective, they can't control it, so they won't focus on it. That mm-hmm. would be my message. Mm-hmm. What's the point in um, focusing and putting energy on something that is actually outside of your control? Um, and it will only allow, you know, in terms of the commentary, the press, all of that 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 goes on. They actually they they don't know that they don't know. So that level of simplification that you're talking about, they've got absolutely no idea. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, which is um, easy to easier to forgive, isn't it? Um, but also, I think that you know the most important thing is that the team will. It's a little bit of a cliche. Individuals will focus on uh, what they're in control of, and that's how much they choose to believe in it, in themselves and each other. To work hard and to to challenge themselves to go as far as they possibly can. When you have that, any external outside source of distraction, if you want to call it that pales into insignificance because you know we get to a stage where we don't even notice that that's going on you know the papers will come out and they'll always have headlines of whatever they're going to be and um, you know if we think of the team as an energy tank um, and only to only do the things that give them energy to, we're, we are only going to do the things that give us energy and make us feel good then if reading the paper about a journalist that's made up some kind of ridiculous headline about how much I suffer from a psychological deficiency, 
that's not going to give me energy. Well, it might give me energy if I, if I think it's funny and it's a water off a duck's back, but, I, you know, I just uh, avoid that altogether and focus on the things that, that really matter, that really matter. Um, and that is, you know, that is how far we're going to go and how much we think and believe in ourselves when you get to that stage. You know, the technical, the tactical um, differences we spoke about earlier are very little by yeah. that stage. You can affect it very little. Mm -hmm. So the psychology, if we're talking about psychology of the team, becomes even more important. And, you know, the energy tank that is the England team, um, I think will surprise a lot of people. We will see. We will see. <laughs> Thanks very much for your time, Tom. Much appreciated, mate. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, mate. And...